This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, movie lovers, back for another Anatomy of Movie here on Popcorn Talk as we dissect the latest Christopher Nolan epic, Dunkirk. That's why we travel back to World War II, so stay tuned as we dissect everything. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. The follow-up to Interstellar. We're here to talk about it. Um, it's his shortest film to date. <laughs> um, but yet so uh, so amazing. Um, but let me introduce the panel. As always, we have Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. Uh, the one and only Dimitri Panos. Hey, movie fans. I'm very excited about this movie. That's right. And making the summer. And uh, making a return um, as a guest on today's panel. Um, you might remember him from the finest hours as one of our guests. Uh, Dimitri, your friend. Um, yes. uh, do the honors, will you? Well, uh, yeah, I'm very honored. Uh, we have uh, John Pruitt, Captain, United States Coast Guard, retired recently. Yes, he did. But he wasn't retired when he worked on Dunkirk. So uh, he was very kind enough uh, to come back. And he wants to talk about the experience of working with Christopher Nolan. And he has insights uh, specifically of the air portion Mm -hmm. of Dunkirk. So welcome back. Thanks. So happy to be here. And uh, great to see you guys again. Yeah. Yeah. And if you haven't seen The Finest Hours, see that too. Because we have awesome insight to that movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and so uh, so we're going to talk, obviously, a lot. Uh, for those of you just joining us for, for the very first time, we've seen you've seen the movie. Um, especially when, when it comes to a Nolan movie, it's very tough to not talk to talk about it in a non-spoiler way. And so we're going to spoil a lot today. Um, and also, uh, in, our, in our description box, it has our rundown, so that way you two can follow along with all of our notes uh, of everything we discussed here today. Um... One of the first things that I want to talk about, even before we talk about really our overall thoughts of the movie, I want to talk about Dunkirk and um, you know people's history and perception of it. Because I think it's, in terms of American history, I think it's a very lesser known part of World War II. Um, you know, when I look at the, Earth, the most recent film that I remember about Dunkirk, it's Atonement. And, you know, that's that nine minute tracking shot in there. Uh, and it makes Dunkirk seem like somewhat of a happy place, <laughs> which is going to be the total opposite of this. But, um, you know, so I, I, I read Atonement before um, the movie came out, so that's how I was sort of really exposed to the tragedy of Dunkirk, apart from just kind of more of a footnote within the greater context of American history. Um, but I, I, I open up to you guys. Marissa, I want to kick us off. Well, yeah, um, I I have a fascination with World War II stories because it's a generation I was not alive for, as most of us, if not all of us, weren't. Um, But we know of it, and we know the stories. And I always appreciate when you learn more about a historical event that more people should know about. And I feel like Dunkirk, again, was one of those history, historical moments that not a lot of people 
was informed of. And I think this movie did a great job of just taking that short amount of time, but actually like expanding it into different ways of seeing what actually happened on the beach and what these men and some of the women went through. And I appreciate like the efforts from civilians and learning that this was a real story and they were put into these unfathomable uh, situations and location. You just appreciate like the the strength of what people can overcome in dire situations like this, and who actually rises in and steps up to the plate in big uh, scenarios like this. And like you just have to applaud people who went through this and live to tell the tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna, John. You have. We were just yeah. talking before taking the chair. We were talking about the history of this. So you have a lot to. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when I think about Dunkirk, it really does impact me. Uh, My father was actually in World War II, uh, so I was the later generation child. Uh, So I've always had a long history and love of just history in terms of, like, the struggles and the survivals of people like that. And kind of what we talked about earlier, Dimitri, um, you know, Dunkirk was kind of this huge uh, movement of people to save their fellow countrymen. And, you know, uh, one of the things that with the Coast Guard happened, you know, significantly later was post 9-11. So uh, the largest maritime sea lift, kind of a recursor of Dunkirk, was post 9-11. And that was, you know, people going to save their fellow countrymen. uh, And the Coast Guard put out a call very similar to, like, the uh, Royal Navy to calling all boats, come and save your fellow countrymen. And so the Coast Guard did to the... To get them off Manhattan. To get them off of lower Manhattan, absolutely. So, you know, um, unfortunately, sometimes history repeats itself, but it's a strong, you know, uh, proponent of saying people are strong no matter what the situation is. And even though they may not be in the military, they're still willing to sacrifice and help out their fellow countrymen. And, so. and correct me if I'm wrong, too, up and Pardon me. Up until that 9-11 evacuation, mm-hmm. Dunkirk was the largest evacuation of human souls from getting one place to another and evacuating off a beach up absolutely. until 9-11. Absolutely. Which is the largest maritime, correct? That's, that is absolutely correct. And uh, it's, it's amazing when you think about just the efforts and willingness of people to do that. You know, uh, the distances were <clears throat> greater, obviously, with Dunkirk having to go across, you know, all the way across the English Channel, uh, but still... Uh, no less amount of sacrifice. And I think that's one of the great things about the movie, indeed. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, and just, um, do you guys want to go a little bit more into, the, you know, MRSA, unless you have something to add to, to your review of the movie? Um, do you guys want to add um, about in terms of the movie itself? Uh, well, it, um, you know, watching this, and we know Christopher Nolan is, like, really great with the nonlinear type of storyline, and it takes you a while to start figuring out what actually is happening. Um, so I went into this film knowing that there were like three different types of storylines, but exactly trying to figure out how they tied in together. Sure. So, I mean, if you're listening to us, we've assumed you watched the movie. But it took me to, after the fact, doing the research, like just the actual time duration of each storyline. The, the land is one week, the sea is one long day, and the air is one hour in Maybe. time span. Yeah. Had I known that fact, I would have figured things out so much quicker in this <laughs> film. Yeah. But I, I think it was really smart how they showed it in in the concise way that they did and how it all 
you know, like Christopher Nolan does, perfectly match up to each other and still somehow make sense. Yeah, you know, I have that as part of my review. I mean, we've talked about directors before that, how their previous work has brought them to this opus. Like, they couldn't have done this movie had they not done movies A, B, and C. I think that's the case here, too, because, you know, for movies like Memento, uh, from Inception, from Interstellar, you know, all movies that deal with changing time and, you know, and switching time and levels of time brings them to Dunkirk, which, you know, to me, it's a trinity. You know, we've got a trinity in this movie going on, as you said, one week, one day, one hour. Um, and I think it was just, it was masterful in a, a Hitchcockian way to me as to how it came together. And yet it was very, it was extremely suspenseful in that wonderful Hitchcockian way. And yet, and where each story was independent of each other, each story also intertwined and relied on another story for those stories to come into the fold and come to fruition and have their their end, so to speak. Some tragic, some not so tragic. It's just so well done from a cinematic narrative. And in today's world, it makes it seem fresh. Um, and for me, I just think, you know, just get a segue into opinion I just think it's the, the best movie of the year thus far and that our academy our, our award season that we're eventually coming to is going to have a high bar to live up to and that says a lot being that this is a movie that is released in the summertime but I think that people are still going to be talking about Dunkirk and hopefully they do not forget of what Christopher Nolan was able to put together yeah, no, I, I I agree with you completely in terms of just the the impact and the visualization of how great that the movie is. I mean, the recursive timeline and, and just it all works. And, it, and honestly, I think if I had known uh, the time factor before, it may have spoiled it for me. It was kind of neat to kind of put it all together in the end, kind of like, oh wow, that all it worked, and it and it really gives you this weird perspective of the men fighting and you can see how their lives really just were impacted by time i mean it's you know the guys on the beach they were fighting and struggling for such a long time just to survive and you know and not to negate the one hour of the guys on the planes but but that was a struggle too that was just a long day and and it carried along throughout the entire time of the movie it was just impressive so yeah uh I I appreciate like um I think when you watch this movie I think in a sense you win if you survive it. You know, yeah. I mean it's yeah. it's 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 one of those movies yeah. you're really exposed to those elements of that movie. Um you're not I don't know whatever preconceived notion you had or at least I had um you're not there to enjoy it. You're there to just live through it and be like, "Oh, I'm glad I survived that." Um <laughs> it's it very yeah. much an experience. You know, in, of, in your... of that when was Caliber. the last time you felt that? I mean, again, right. I didn't, I didn't realize that going in. But I can honestly say that this was one of the most suspenseful, intense movies I've sat through, and it really lets up to give you time to catch your breath. <laughs> you're right, yeah. Phil. I mean, it puts you right th- in each place. You're you're there. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, honestly, the last time I felt like that was Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. Right. The opening scene. When the, when the gate fell, you were there. And you yeah. were there the whole time. And that's how yeah. it was with this movie. Well, yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting with the, with this movie, like, um, as you're watching, you're kind of like, well, you know, especially with, with um, the flyers coming in initially, you wonder, okay, uh, when when are the Germans really going to get here? And when, when and it's you never really see them fighting at all. No, uh, and that's that's one of the more extraordinary. Like the, the, to call this a war movie, when there's pretty much like no war um, in terms of their immediate actions. Uh, it is remarkable. Yeah, there, there isn't the fighting that we normally are accustomed to in a war movie. I mean, is it a war movie? Is it a th- suspense thriller like it can fall under someone can make the argument that it is a suspense thriller as opposed to a war movie but we open up i mean that kid well here's another thing too well he starts getting shot at by the germans but for the most part until the end of the movie they're faceless Mm -hmm. and even at the end of the movie we see the bodies but we don't really see their faces as they're as they're taking away tom hardy the other amazing thing about this movie, too, is how little dialogue there actually is in this movie. And not only that, from a writing standpoint, most of these characters aren't even called by their surnames. I mean, right. if you stay for the credits, you realize that uh, Finn, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. like Fionn. Fionn. Yeah. Like, Fionn Whitehead. Yeah. You don't even know what his... Nobody calls him by name in the movie. Um, you don't... No, in how many movies do you follow a main character where you really don't know who what his name is? Right, I was thinking the exact same thing because you know, watching it, I remember <clears throat> thinking like maybe it might have been like 15 20 minutes into me, I was like, I think this is the first person we've heard actually speak because <laughs> everything yep. we're, we're following, we're literally following this guy through the streets into the beach, and then, then we're watching him like try to get to the ship and stuff. We're following people around the actual location so we get a scope of the, the location but we're not really communicating w- with each other in that way and so like I noticed that there wasn't a lot of talking it's really nope. just watching people kind of live out their mm-hmm. their day-to-day business you said it best we're following and, and Fiona's character's name is Tommy Tommy yeah. I don't know where Tommy comes <laughs> in at all but we're, we we are following Tommy we are following um, Mr. Dawson. We are... Yeah, we're following everybody. Following, we're, and we're in the boats with them. And But you're right. Um, Tommy is the character that sort of gets a bit of almost everything. Um, He's like the, the through line. That's right. like through the line. one thread throughout the whole film that takes yeah. us at almost every location except for the air. But sure. you see what's happening in air and who's underneath it. Yeah, know, so. it, and it's very interesting how we come into the movie because even Christopher Nolan has described Dunkirk as it's a third act. Like, there's no there's no getting to know these characters. Like, we're put, I'm putting the audiences right in the thick of things. Things have happened previously, and that's obvious. And he's right. He's delivered an hour and 47 minute third act that has its own first, second, and third act. Sure. It's, it's very brilliant in that. And it works. I mean, I was on the edge of my seat. Well, I think, you know, uh, for, from the perspective of that, it's the ultimate show don't tell. You know? Like, mm. And you, it's not like we need to... For my money, we, I never need to know 
the characters' names and and uh, motivation. It's not like I need anyone to ever be like, oh, geez, I wish we got off this uh, beach. You know what I'm saying? I get it. Right. <laughs> no one needs to say that. Um, it's and and um, so it's it's an, uh, another sort of cliche. A, a simple story, extremely well told. Um, I think part of there there's certain movies that suffer from just so many ideas and so many things trying to be overcomplicated that that amounts to nothing and the fact that this is just so sim- simplistic in what these characters are trying to achieve therefore the movie it, it wins on on all those fronts yeah, yeah. And, yeah and ultimately we know these characters from their appearance because each one if you notice is their appearance is very different mm-hmm. like from a spitfighter pilot to being a yacht boating guy to being Tommy and then it becomes their their actions and their consequences and that's how we basically know like of what they do has consequences and it becomes a question of heroism to me and survival and how each character's choices have an effect not only on their own characters but people around them and that to me goes to your point of its simplicity but yet it's so complex Mm -hmm. you know and it's rare in filmmaking today to take that risk to to do that to film a movie like that so what were you gonna say well i was gonna say like you know one of the things too and your point about the fact that there's no names to me it was more impactful because there are three hundred thousand people on this beach by having no names, those characters that we saw on the screen were all the 300,000 people. Mm-hmm. Every single one of those people, that was their story. You know, and, and, and that was, there were probably another 30 stories just like those that were occurring simultaneously. We will never know. And, and it was just very powerful. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, since we're kind of in story, I want to take a quick step back and talk about uh, the development, um, really, of, of why Nolan um, came to to this and how, how he sort of wrote about it. I mean, uh, just from a simple jumping-off point, uh, he's British, and so it's ingrained into the British culture, um, you know, this, this moment in history. Um, it's, you know, for those of you non-history um, inclined, it was before America really got into the war and, and so forth, so this was kind of... Um, you know, a big part of their history, but um, why don't yeah. you kick sophomores? And also, uh, like 25 years ago, so like mid-90s, around that time, Christopher Nolan and his wife, Emma Thomas, they actually crossed the English Channel at that time, and because Christopher Nolan knew about, you know, Dunkirk and all that, he was just fascinated, and he always wanted to tell the story. And during that trip, it was actually, they were encountering bad weather, and that was just, like, another element that he wanted to incorporate into the story. It was like, well, we weren't under fire. It was just trying to cross the English right. Channel. And knowing, knowing the history, like, what did these people go through when there was bad weather, when they were under fire during the war? What would that be like? And so he always had that, that concept um, no. ingrained in him for years. Yeah, that like, itch. Got it. Yeah, and how to do it. Like how to tell the and, story. And, and to be accurate. That's the other thing, too. And it's something, you know, you can say about movies. I think one of the like, Platoon sort of kind of changed things for the way and how war movies were told. Sure. Where, where Oliver Stone, who was, who is a vet, um, integrated a lot of real personal experience in Platoon. And it was 
one of the first times we saw realistic combat and, and, and fighting in, you know, in Vietnam. And I think Platoon changed the landscape so that when we get to a movie like Saving Private Ryan, again, there's a realism there that we hadn't seen before. So it was like the next level. So hence, you know, when we get um, movies like uh, Sniper, uh, American Sniper, Sniper um, Lone Survivor, you know, they all take from, you know, it was because of movies like Saving Private Ryan uh, that they can be as they are. This movie, albeit it's not as gory, let's say, sure. but it's no less violent. And I think because of its suspense, it punctuates that violence. You know, there, 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 there's like consequences, and you don't know from where it's going to come from. And along with sound editing, around with score, we'll talk about. Um, I think that Dunkirk really did this amazing job, as you said, Phil, of putting the audience into this like hell in mm -hmm. a way that for an hour and forty-seven minutes, let. The second time I saw this movie, there were two women sitting next to me, and they were like, oh, all through the, they were just like, oh my God, oh my God, mm -hmm. oh my God. And when it was over, <laughs> one of them just was like, whoo! <laughs> she was like spent. Um, and in a good way, I didn't feel like I was beat up um, after watching it. I felt sort of kind of like an adrenaline, like, oh my head. No, like, I completely yeah. agree. I think they did a great job of establishing, like, claustrophobic moments mm -hmm. that naturally build up that anxiety within a person if they were placed into that situation. And I think they did it great because you never really get a sense of space. You know, like, you understand yes. the location, right. but you don't know, like, where they are in, in accordance to the next thing next, near yes. them. And I think they did a great job of building up like those tension moments yeah. where it does cause that anxiety. I, mean, yeah. I watched this with Becca, our social media person. She was freaking out the entire time. She actually had to leave the theater for like a good five minutes. I kid you not. Wow. So like I, they did a How great come we job. Don't have her on the panel? Yeah, they did a great job of of executing right. like human emotions in yeah. situations like that. Yeah, you wouldn't know it, how to feel. And I think that was what Nolan's drive was to put us in there and to Nolan's credit it's not like he didn't he didn't what I was saying about like things like Platoon and Saving Private Ryan there was a lot of research being done and he did his research he went out to a, 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 a historical consultant Joshua Levine who wrote this Forgotten Voices of Dunkirk and he went to him he read a ton of books about this and he talked and there were a lot of first-hand accounts we can find and he understood this tricky balance between entertainment and historical accuracy and I think he, we've talked about this many times before when there's a, a movie of historical context or if it's a quote unquote true story right mm -hmm. and we talk about how in some cases they cross that line they cross the line of sure. okay uh, the marathon bombing movie which we talked extensively, right. right? In this movie, there are some inaccuracies that, you know, Nolan comes out and says, yes, I had to change the Messerschmitt plane and I painted it a color that didn't exist then, but from a visual standpoint, it makes you sense. needed to have that in there. You know, the uh, Kenneth Branagh character wasn't a true character, but he was an amalgamation. I get, while well, you're not going to have that, 
everything he does makes it's economical and it makes sense and it doesn't take you out of the movie. Well, at like, no point at no point was there a title card inspired by true events or based true. on true like yeah. the, 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 he you know, apart from us throwing the association because it's called Dunkirk and him going for it, it's he, he you know, he's never stated that outright. Right. Um well yeah, I was going to say, too, uh, you know, as a military member, you know, oftentimes you can be lost in a movie because it just doesn't feel real. It doesn't say the story like you know it would be said if you were in the military. And it, it touches all those bases. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. It's accurate. And you're right. Like, regarding, like, some of the depictions, yeah, the uniform's different and the coloring and the aircraft is different and... But it didn't distract. It didn't pull me away from that saying, no, that would never happen. And, and, I, and I thought, you know, even when you talk about, like, you know, the characters in the end, the amalgamation, um, it works. I mean, it yeah. just worked to me. And it spoke to me and said, yeah, I could, I could be that person or I would know that person that would do the same thing, who would stay there until the last man got off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And I even find the, you know, the painting of the... <clears throat> the planes a different color actually helps tell the audience how you distinguish who's the enemy plane and who's actually our, our allies who's mm-hmm. the, who's our guys um because when there was that moment when they were on the yacht they're like is that one of us or right. so like they actually clearly explain like no this is what our good guys look like and this right. is so i think it even helped and it didn't take away it helped actually inform us it's a, it's a great visual cue so that we know um so, and Nolan too. Going off of your point from the from the top, Phil, like he even goes on. Like he said, his primary goal was to put the audience directly onto the beach, on board the boat traversing the channel, uh, and and in the cockpit of the Spitfires. And he expanded his use. He's no stranger to using large format like IMAX, um, uh, the, the 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 Dark Knight. Dark Knight. He really got into IMAX a lot and then um, Rise of the Dark Knight Dark Knight Rises Dark Dark Knight Rises sorry Um, again he used that format a lot and and he encouraged people same thing with Interstellar like I'm filming in IMAX these scenes are gonna literally select scenes where were filmed in that format so your, your screen would go from here to like here and you can tell but it looked gorgeous but in this one he was like he shot again entirely on film with a combination of IMAX and 65 millimeter film that he's never done before, and again he's always testing himself as a filmmaker, which I think you know makes his movies stand apart because he wants to take the movie going experience to a level that maybe he's never even done before. He still uses film. He's one of those people, which is fine. Um, and again, I don't know if you saw it in what format you, you saw it in. Do you remember? Um, I, I, I remember seeing, you know, um, this is one of those rare movies, like with, with Dark Knight um, and, and, and IMAX in general, right? There's <clears throat> that. It's almost like a cue. Something's, something big's about to happen yes. when it changes. Mm-hmm. Right. This was almost quite the opposite because it's, it's in that format for s- uh, extended periods of time that mm-hmm. when it goes back to something else you're like ooh what, what's gonna happen here or why is this different sure. um so um certainly but I do um 
sticking to the script, I want to kind of, uh, I want to start to get you a little bit involved because I'm curious. Sure, sure. Um, from what I understand, and if Dimitri Mercy, you, uh, you have anything otherwise, the script itself was realistically like 30 pages. It was pretty simple, from my understanding, unless you guys have uh, evidence otherwise. Um, but the fact, uh, regardless of the, the, the script length, apart from maybe, let's say, 20 crew members that read the script, no one else did. And so I'm curious as to, A, how you got involved. <laughs> B, how was it like to work without, I assume you didn't read the script, um, certainly when you were doing it. And then uh, thirdly, did you finally have a chance to read the script? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, great questions. Uh, so uh, my role started as uh, with the Coast Guard's motion picture and television office, which is here in L.A., uh, and uh, oftentimes working with different production companies and and everything, and so we were approached by Warner Brothers to uh, consider, you know, helping out with this filming. And uh, this, as far as the script goes, we got basically the treatment of like, mm-hmm. you know, and and having known the history of Dunkirk, like, okay, I get I get what we're trying to do here. And uh, yeah, never read the script uh, as far as it goes, but you know, we we knew what it was about, type thing, and. Uh, then it just came down to actually the execution and trying to figure out how to make this happen and bring his vision to life. And to Christopher Nolan's credit was the idea that let's make this real. So when you see that aircraft flying or in the air, those are the real clouds. I mean, that's that's the world you see behind it, not the green screen. You know, and that that's why we were there was to help to kind of facilitate and bring that whole course to action. So. What, what was the vision like? You know, early on talks. I mean, I, I you know, I'm sure, especially for a movie of sure. this size, you don't just go into it. We'll try it. <laughs> it's what, so you know, because um, again, you know, for you it might be you know second nature at this point, but right, especially right. for our audience and even us, you know, we're not exposed to that on a daily basis. Sure, I think you know uh, where we shot there was in uh, Palos Verdes, which is south of LA and uh, essentially on a cliff. And so the idea was to get this perspective of this aircraft flying and seeing the sky. And then also inside the cockpit without having to do the green screen, you know, without having to, to fake it, essentially. So that, because you can't replicate reality perfectly. And that was the idea. And so how do you do that? How do you accomplish that without endangering your actors? How do you accomplish that without you know, essentially faking it with, uh, with models and things like that as well, as, least, you know, as little as possible. Um, so you've got to find that location. You've got to, actually, then you've got to figure out, can you make it work? You know, and that, that was huge. Like, do we need to actually do an environmental study so that we don't well, destroy the hill that we're working <laughs> on? I mean, literally, that was, are we going to fall into the ocean? We, so. we have some pictures. We have uh, three pictures uh, taken by your wonderful photographer, Paul. Absolutely. Um, well, okay, this is one where we actually see a Spitfire hanging over the ocean. Yeah. Over the, tell us about this. Right. So, uh, you know, you don't totally see, I was looking at the ground itself, at the very corner there, there's a full stage that was built onto the cliff. And that's where we did a lot of the, the, uh, the cockpit shots and things like that. This shot in particular was where you see at the end of Dunkirk where the aircraft is uh, lowering its landing gear. And these, these are also a lot of the shots where you see a full aircraft flying. So that's it. I mean, it's a, it's a real shot. And there's, you know, you can, you know, they pull the wires out type thing, you know, with the editing. 
but otherwise that's that's your aircraft and so but you look at this entire hillside here well we're about 200 feet above the ocean on which was proved by the engineers to be a stable cliff because we had to bring them in first to make sure we weren't going to just fall in the ocean trying to put like a you know a hundred ton crane on the side of a cliff so uh it, it was definitely impressive i mean and, and then go to our second yeah picture Oh, okay. Yeah. Is this the stage? We so were this talking is the stage about, right? here, as you can see, and it, you know, you can see the the various pieces of the, the Spitfire that were kind of there were three sections to create the entire aircraft, uh, and this is a different aircraft than the one that was actually hanging from the crane. <laughs> so you know, and they would pull the sections out depending on which camera shot they needed to get. Um, but again, it was like, okay, we need a view of the ocean and the sky. Let's build a platform on the side of a cliff. How do we make that happen? And so uh, there you can see aircraft number two a little bit closer down, uh, you know, prior to going over the side of the cliff in the ocean. So it's definitely amazing. That's yeah, neat so. because also in this photo you can see, like, just the scale of the actual aircraft compared yes. to a regular oh, know, building or, like, how big and massive it was. I mean, was. These, were, these were full-size aircraft. I mean, they were non-functional, non-flying aircraft. But it really, when you, when you sat next to it or stood next to it, you're like, oh, I'd like to go flying in this. I mean, all I need is, can we spin the propeller and take off on the right the nearest <laughs> runway? I mean, I want to, so. Um, so I want to talk to you, you, you filmed pretty much, well, all of anything that was in interior. Right. It was um, filmed there. And yeah, the yeah. And you only had one, right? Right. So talk us through about what that took because you had two actors who were in two planes but yet you only had one prop in a sense sure so uh, you know um this done with the actors having to fit into the aircraft you know and one of the great things is at least the aircraft come in one size so <laughs> you, you figure okay we don't have to change the sizes out type thing but to bring the actors in and then okay today is tom hardy's day all right so shoot scenes with him and then we're switching out to the next actors and then so going back and forth and then you've got to recreate everything inside. So all those notes and those, you know, the dictations that were there, I mean, that's what the pilots would normally do, take those notes. And so they've got to be put right back. And so for those interior shots, too, the aircraft, that section, that middle section, was put on a gimbal that was hand-controlled. And then depending on what the aspect of the shot that they were looking for, it wasn't tilt the camera, it was tilt the aircraft. Wow. with the actor in there. So all of a sudden it's like, okay, let's jank the <laughs> aircraft 45 degrees to the right. And it's like, okay, Tom, hang on, because we're moving you to the right. So it was definitely Was it like that? Was it like, okay, Tom, hang on, we're moving you to the right? Or Yeah, I mean, I think, it... you know, there was no really, because uh, there was actually very little talking, if you want to say, on right. set. But it was, um, you know, hey, this scene is coming up here. We're going to be moving you. You know, this is what's coming on. Okay. So, yeah. I also read, though, too, that you had to... So Tom Hardy films his scene. Uh, the other gentleman comes in to film his. But you had to change the interior of the aircraft as well. Right. Just to, so they could sit and, and, you know, still have the same seats and everything like that and fit into that aircraft. So, yeah. So you repurposed the same aircraft. 
right. to look like it was two different aircraft. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it was, it was pretty amazing just to see this happen, you know. Sort of economical, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, yeah, that, absolutely, that, absolutely. That, happens. Yeah, that so. happens on a yeah. lot of, you know, of t- television stuff. I actually have a fun story. It's not really that, that much of a story. But in September of last year, 2016, um, I was actually walking around the WB studio a lot uh-huh. and I actually walked past the Dunkirk set. Oh, okay. They were wow. filming. Uh, like at WB because you know it, it's through that and um, it, it was just a, like a quick moment maybe two minutes long but we actually had to stop because they were filming we couldn't oh. you know cross the, the set or mm-hmm. even around or make any movements as you would in filming but what I saw in that short amount of time like I saw the actual plane and an actor in it I couldn't distinguish who it was but they were filming like I guess it it was inserts of the actual filming of people in the cockpit of a particular airplane but that was my only encounter with the Dunkirk production and I thought it was pretty awesome. we actually have video of the production and specifically tied to the Spitfire and, and the flying of the Spitfires which I think is pretty cool and it's Christopher Nolan the shots in the film where you see one of the actors yep, in a right there, spitfire you know just beyond them another spitfire that's the single coolest thing i've ever been involved in is, is when you can look over and there is a spitfire banking around next to you we're flying over where it happened i mean ridiculous it is absolutely insane. There's really no way that you could create that in a computer. That intimate physicality, that tiny cockpit. He's on me! To be in there for an hour or two. We really focused on that as being one of the most important aspects of the film. Putting the audience in that scene. I'm on him. Which is an extremely difficult thing to do. You see these you know, amazing airplanes in beautiful natural light through the canopy of the Spitfire and the other plane in the sky shot on IMAX entirely in camera. It's not it's not something you've seen before. And it hasn't it, it hasn't been anything yeah. I've seen before. Not to that degree. Yeah. At least. Oh absolutely. And like even you know you saw the like the sparking from the, the bullets going on like that. I mean just to be there and imagine here you are in this cockpit flying the plane and these sparks are going off right behind your head of these of these bullets impacting on your aircraft. I mean, the actors, you know, that that's still going to shock you even if you're, you know, you know you're playing the role. That's I me. Bet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Um, so, let, yeah, let's, uh, since we're talking about the, um, uh, you know, the, the land, or not the land, I'm sorry, the air part of this, let's continue along that sort of thinking. And, and when I look back on it, um, you know, I don't know this as a fact, but most of the talking for me probably was in the air simply because it was instructional. Sure. Right. You know, like how much fuel you got? I got this much. Okay, great. Blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, and that, that's, um, that for me was a lot of fun because it just, um, you know, I was talking for necessity, um, and, and it just kept going forward. And there was, the, there was that such tension because especially like, you know, now, now Obviously, we've got the timetable of things, but now there's another added element of, like, oh, crap. This right. guy's going to run out of gas right. at any moment. Well, we know when, but... Sure. And, and, and what's great about that, too, is because how many times have we seen that that the time bomb thing go? Right? 
and sometimes it's cliche, but here it was really used as, a, as, a, as an incredible plot device because it also brought out the best of our character because he realizes he only has so much, you know, he calculates he only has so much fuel. He can go home. He can turn around and go home. But you see, and again, it's Tom Hardy behind a mask, mm-hmm. right? Uh, he just makes the decision of, no, I got to, I, I, there's still something that needs to be taken care of. And right now, I'm the only one up here that can do this. And he make, and you can see it in his eyes that, yeah, I got to go. I, I can't go home. To that point, yeah. what, do you, what did you guys think? It's Tom, um, Tom Hardy has a choice. Obviously, he's worked with Nolan before, but the you know people are like, oh, you could have probably cast anyone. And the reason I ask is because for my money, he has amazing eyes. Like The amount of acting he was just able to do through his eyes alone. I don't think, you know, I'm sure there's somebody that could pull that off, but I think, you know, Tom is an amazing actor just by that alone. Yeah, and Emma Thomas, the the producer, um, actually had a say in the casting of Tom Hardy because she herself said that Tom Hardy is such an expressive type of actor because even if you, you hide half of his face behind a mask, you can still see the emotions being conveyed just via his expressions, and they wanted... Tom Hardy for that reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and going out to him, it was like, listen, this is all we're going to need for you for, but it's integral, and he's like, that's it, that's all. Oh, yeah, I'm in. I get to work with you guys again. I, I love that. I think the other cool thing is he, in a sense, like in, in some war movies, there's a lot of people yelling. Mm-hmm. Like Even if they're talking on a walkie-talkie, we've got a bank left or ah they're always screaming a lot of people in planes whenever they got a bank ah it's like him was like he's on me and he's like I'm on him and and he does it with this casualness that of a professional fighter pilot that I just it added to the realism oh and he was calm cool collected but you could see his gears turning and trying to okay what do I have to do next how am I going to get this bandit down yeah, brilliant. Absolutely, and I think that's that struck me honestly. Again, as as that military mindset and of thinking, like the professionalism of it's purposeful. There's not wasted communication, and I think that's probably when you get to the lack of dialogue because it wasn't necessary. You know, when you're fighting in a plane you, and you're trying to figure out where this enemy is to stay alive and also to maybe shoot them down, you you can't spend all day talking. And so all you can do is tell the specific information that's important. And, that, and that's awesome. And his eyes gave that up. It was, it was yeah, perfect. I agree yeah. with you about, about his expressiveness yeah. and his eyes. But the other gentleman, too, I thought did a really good job. Jack Loudon, that's Collins. I thought he did a really good job. He had his mask off more. Um, did you folks get the wonderful cameo? Uh, did you guys? Because... Don't forget that there were three Spitfires. There was the commander. Did you catch who the commander was? I didn't know. But you never saw his face, but you only heard his voice. It was Michael Caine. Oh, yes, yes, I did read that. Yes, Michael Caine. It was Michael Caine. It was like her, and and he was was a fighter pilot and back to Britain, Mm. I believe. Um, So it was a nice little sort of homage. But again, another Nolan favorite. And as soon as I heard his voice, I was like, that's Michael Caine. I wonder if we're going to... He would have been too... 
might have been too old, but I was just, it was great that they used his voice. And it was interesting that they go over his plane, but there was no shoot. And, right. You know, then it was down to two and then one. That I've, plane crash was... Oh, yeah. No. In the water. I really awesome. liked um, Loudon for the, the short amount of time we saw him because you, we saw him, like, almost drown, too. And just the audience is, like, in the cockpit drowning. And that gives you that sense of, like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And I thought that was, it, it was great watching yeah. because you felt for this character, too, because this is a real story. You know, pilots went down like this in World War II all the time. And so to actually get that sense of, like, the the, the drasticness of it all and yeah. the gravity of what they went through, um, I really enjoyed. And I, I was glad. I was happy when they saved him. I was like, right. ugh, thank yeah, goodness. Yeah, same here. And, thank and, goodness. And it goes back to... His 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 character's adventure arc ends when he crashes because then he goes on and he intertwines into another story. He goes into the one full day timeline. Mm-hmm. So he's in the hour, but then he transverse he traverses over and he plays a to part in that. Yeah. Right. And that's what I mean about the intertwining where they're each all independent, but yet their consequences, their actions end up leading into something else. Did you notice? Um, all right, so there was a scene when we first, when they're first describing, when they're setting everything up. So the mole, one week. Uh, uh, the boat, um, or sea, one day. Air, one hour. And when we first see our Spitfires, there were three of them, uh, going overhead, they go over a boat. And I looked down, and I was like, that's the yacht. That's, yeah. that's the yacht that we just saw in By Sea. And again, the, the juxtapositioning of time. Because then when we're on the yacht, they get to that point. They go, oh, look. And Mark uh, Rylands' character says, oh, it's like the best plane ever made right. and stuff like that. Those are the things, when I saw it a second time, you try to pick out more and it, it really See, I is watched, cued. Yeah, I would have benefited more from the second watching. I've only watched this once. But when it said mole, you know, one week, it mole is just like a certain location. Had it said land one week, I would have under it would have been more encompassing with sure. every because we move in different locations right. on the land, not just in the mole. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, do you at least understand what the mole was for many viewers? Right. Mole yeah. means someone like a snitch. Especially during World War II. Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because uh, when I saw the movie, um, I was sitting there, you know, going, oh, it made perfect sense to me. I'm like, it's a mole pier. But as a sailor, that's what what you'd call it. You really, you wouldn't call it a pier because of what exactly it was. It was actually a mole. And, you know, sitting there in the movie theater, I was like, I had to lean over and go, Oh, okay. And people were a little confused in that, but I think it still kind of added to the, this is it. This is what the, we wouldn't call it anything else. Right. Mm -hmm. And so why would I change it to just inform the audience? And that's Nolan's, yeah, exactly. That's Nolan's explanation. He goes, well, that's what it is. And it's funny, and I caught it on my second viewing, when that little title card comes up, it's directly over the mole pier. It is. Exactly. Over. Absolutely. And you got the visual enhancement yeah. of what it is, the reinforcement of what it is. Oh, I wasn't I was as I was as smart as everybody else. As soon as it said the mole, I said, Oh. 
okay, one of those two is a spy. <laughs> we're gonna have. Yeah, oh, we're gonna, yeah. He's gonna be. Oh, he's not. He's not going underground. Oh. oh, he's the spy, and I expected. Again, I expected World War Two tropes of the. Like I'm over here. They're over here. Bomb this ship, but not the case. It, it took me. You know, it took me a moment as well, it's only because. You know, at that point, you don't really... That's the first, quote, chapter, or whatever you want to call it, and we don't really know where this is headed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it isn't until later on, once you understand, okay, here's here's how we're going to do this story, that you're like, oh, okay. So, and, but at that point, it's a little too late. Um, speaking of that, I do want to, you know, um, ask you. Um, they were evacuating people, from my understanding, the East Mole, correct? Uh, I believe so. I I'm not sure exactly, but yeah. And, uh, and and do you have a little bit of insight? Like, um, I have very limited knowledge. You know, I have my version of it. Um, but can you explain why it was happening the way that it was? In terms of, like, the evacuation of people like that? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you were to look at, like, a pier like that and what ships you could get in there. So at one point it was, let's send as many large ships as we can to get as many people out at a time. Well, those large ships can only get so close. And that was kind of the theme kind of carried out. Like, why can't we just send all the large ships? Well, even if we send an entire fleet there, there was only the pier to get them out on. And there's only one side of the pier that you could put a ship on. So you really can only fit one ship at a time in there. And then with a lack of air cover from friendly aircraft, now you're going to sink all these ships. And worst case would be is if you sunk a ship at that pier, then they'd never be able to use that pier again until, you know, the end of the war at some point. They couldn't get people out, you know. And so it's, it's a very kind of calculating perspective going on. And, and even if you were to go back as far as, say, from the long-term perspective of the English, is at some point we've got to go back to Dunkirk. So we've mm-hmm. got to be able to get back to that pier. So, you know, big picture, we can't clog up that pier now because it's, we don't know when, but we're going to come back and we're going to take Dunkirk and retake Europe to stop that oppression that's going on. So, yeah, it's, it definitely was just crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's talk, yeah, let's, let's dive into that storyline since we're talking about it. About the mole storyline? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> the mole? The land. The, the, the land, the mole. Yeah. Well, I, I was just fascinated with it because we, when we talk about different World War II stories, we learn about the different tactics that a lot of situations have. And right. for this one, it was the mole that was like essentially their only evacuation point. You had their, the one exit door right. out of their location, <laughs> yeah. more so to understand it. But I, it just, I was more afraid for those guys who were just standing on the pier because yeah. it's literally a turkey shoot. Mm-hmm. They're standing in basically open land where you're just standing completely vulnerable to every source of attack and well it, but it wasn't necessarily open like the guys on the beach were open the guys on the mole were trapped on the mole right yeah. like so the only thing they could do is jump either to the right or to the left or duck or, or, yeah. or whatever to your you know to add to what you were saying too the other thing about the mole is that this isn't this wasn't built to like A plus standards. There were gaps, there were holes, deterioration, fighting. I mean, the scene with the stretcher where they had that one plank that they had to walk right. off, that's what these people had to stand on, from what I understand. So it was pretty um, uh, pretty accurately portrayed. Absolutely. 
in this movie as to what that was. So you're under fire. You're, it's not quite the most stableest thing in the planet. <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, yeah. You got that sense. And even like, you know, it, I, I felt this weird kind of juxtaposition of would I rather be on the beach or would I rather be on the mole? You know, and to, there's a weird period because it's like, if I'm on the mole, I'm just waiting. I'm going to get out of here before everybody else. But at the same time, to your point of, am I going to get blown up before everybody else too? Because everybody's aiming at this pier and at least the guys on the beach can run away. Yeah. You know, and so what's best? Where, where, do, you, where do you hang your hat? And some of our characters use the mole as cover. Right. Yeah. They get underneath. underneath. So, I'm sorry. No, no, no worries. Uh, you know, I also, in terms of that, too, like, I think there's a strategy element to it, but but also one of the fascinating things for me was um, they didn't necessarily, obviously, they didn't speak to this, but um, a selfishness side to it. Like, how, do you, you know, who's sure. more deserving to be evacuated versus, you know, somebody else? Yeah. And how do you, how do you make that distinction? And obviously, this is kind of more of a lesser free-for-all. Yeah, I mean, I well, you know, actually, I was very impressed, and I think that it almost was this British sensibility, because it was actually kind of talking about it after the movie was, why were they all lined up? You know, if you look at it, it was like, they were queuing up, as we, you know, tend to say, the Brits do. They do a great job of queuing. And, <laughs> you know, especially as soldiers, too, it was like, okay, guys, get in line. And even after the bombs fell, they got back in line in the exact same place where the bombs fell. Keep yeah, calm, no. you know, carry on. Yeah, keep calm and carry on. And and so, and then also, when you look at, like, with the French soldiers, it was like, hang on, British first. So there was a little bit of yeah. maybe, I wouldn't say selfishness, but, hey, it's our boats. We're going to go on our boats. Yeah. And then when we're done, we will get you later. Yeah. You know, so. Right here, yeah. yeah. Which is interesting, too. Um, you know, regarding this, Nathan Crowley of the uh, production designer so they actually, regarding the mole, they had to restore the original Eastern Mole and have it back to its 1940 form. And the department had it constructed with 14 by 14 inch timbers for its legs, uh, using a crane barge to slowly build it out to sea. And there was about 600 feet of existing pier construction. And then they had to add about another 500 feet and totally major undertaking, but they had great help of the city too. That's another thing. Apparently, the city of Dunkirk, they came out in droves to help this production. Wow. They came out to help with construction. They came out as extras. So many yeah. of the actual people, which is really cool, since right. we're Actually, talking about land. Yeah. Um, what what I so what cool. I thought was interesting also about the mold because of the the weather that they had to endure during the actual filming that they had to keep rebuilding the mold because they would destroy the mold during the night and then the same pieces of wood and planks would wash up on the same beach so they'd have to go back out grab their own pieces of wood and restructure it like every single yeah. day. Yeah, weather cycling. Weather yeah. was yeah. a challenge. We actually uh, have the Christopher Nolan talking about. And, and the cinematographer's talking about filming in these conditions of bad weather and how they got around it. Where are we going? We have to go to Dunkirk. <laughs> Just... yeah. First two weeks of shooting, we had 
huge storms and it was wet, it was raining, it was cold, but I mean, we were shooting our best material there, you know. <laughs> we were always struggling with those elements and the tide would always come in faster than you would think. The swing of the tide, as indeed in the original events and the story of the film, is a major, major factor because the swing of the tide is colossal at Dunkirk. Chris and I were like, oh, let's go and shoot, let's go, let's try to, let's try to shoot in this. It's a very extreme sort of extra element to have with you, and that always takes you by surprise. We ended up on various occasions coming in in the morning and finding that bits of our mole had been washed away overnight. And we were basically rebuilding the set while we were shooting something else. That's very much the Nolan way. We're out here, we're out here to work, we're out here to sort of live it a bit more. Being out on the mole when it's windy and rainy and you're kind of getting lashed and battered is quite trying. In a good way, though, it's going to look amazing. And it did look amazing. Um, another cool aspect I felt of the, of the beach area were the um, the flybys or the the the, the what are the German planes Mets? Oh, the Messerschmitts. Yeah, yeah, the Messerschmitts. Here was something that I, the sound the sound effects. Again, normally when there's a bomb drop, it's that. Oh, those are the Stukas. This actually. was Stuka, the Stukas. Stuka yeah, dive bombers. Yeah, and the sound effects of those bombs was much different. Like. When, when Tommy first comes to the beach and he's walking, all of a sudden the, the Stukas come and he gets down. And it was like that, it was like, it was just that, that high-pitched hum. And it was like, or a whine almost of these bombs. And then they went off. Yeah. And when it, when it hit that, 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 the one person who was shooting up at him, oh my God. And I got to tell you too, in 70, with the sound in the theater that I saw it in, it was as immersive as, 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 as can be. But I just noticed that this, it sounded different than any other war movie that I listened to or, or, or watched before. Did you have that same feeling when you were watching that scene at all, like when the bombs are dropping? Um, you know, I mean, I, there was so much to take in that I'm sure it was part of it. Um, I, you know, I was just taking in the larger whole. Um, and just that experience overall was so different that I, I didn't have time to process, okay, what is different? Um, I just knew it was. Yeah. I, I think for, for me on that, it was the, uh, the silence because everything else was, was quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just this plane coming in, preparing to drop a bomb. And people were running, and like you mentioned, the, the gentleman who was, who was fighting back, but that's it there was no ancillary there was no talk there was no there was no time to do anything else but right. you you knew it was coming you just didn't know if it was coming for you or the next guy yeah which was which was also terrifying yeah, yeah. I love the shot where because it was near the beginning when they first dropped the bombs and right. everyone's like running but that that like kind of a domino the effect succession. of all the mm-hmm. the yeah. the sand blowing up and I thought that was great because it is all practical type of explosion and I thought it was just cinematically it, it looked great because it was coming closer and closer to <laughs> the actual screen mm-hmm. and closer to our character and to the audience because that really immersed you into just the, the chaoticness that's mm-hmm. just going on at the beach. Yeah. It, was a, it was a great scene and the other thing I thought that Nolan did really well was and again it was from some of the limited dialogue that we had but when our soldiers 
go to commandeer the beached ship. And they get there, and one sort like, and again, you're trying to think of the scope of this, because it wasn't just like this section. It was an entire beach area. But add to that, as they go there, they're saying, one, somebody says a line, something to the effect of, we're out of the perimeter. Look right. out for the Germans. Yep. Like, they could be anywhere. Like, because we're outside of the perimeter. So, and that just gave me an idea of, there's a perimeter? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and if they're, wow. So we have to be cognizant of where we're at. And it's like, when we start off with Tommy in the town, and all of a sudden he starts getting shot at. He's well within that perimeter. And when he jumps over, or actually he sees, he goes, hey, I'm English. I was like going, oh my God, that scene was so intense and jumping over the fence. And then he gets onto the beach. Mm-hmm. It is a whole new thing. But then you realize how big this beach is, you know. Also the end of the movie, the landing of the plane, right. too. I really I really like the, the fact that they did establish like their actual location. Because the first shot, really, you see is the map of... This is you. Right. This is everybody else where right. you're surrounded. And I'm like, it just showed the small little spot that everyone's stuck in. And I was like, I thought that just putting it on paper in physical form, like you understood that they well, are surrounded. That actually happened. Yeah. And uh, the, 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 original, um, the original pamphlet looked a little bit different. Again, that's something that Nolan elaborated on to make it so that you understand so he's added like red and, and whatnot but uh yeah that that leaflet could you imagine just walking and you catch this leaf it's like we surround you and i'd be like oh shit. am i in a bad place yeah. like, yeah. like this isn't good but it's like the enemy taunting you too right. yeah. you're surrounded Don't yeah i mean that's the, that's marketing from the other team to say, oh absolutely hey, you're screwed yeah. you're screwed well it was i mean that's like psychological warfare like you could just stop and give up and you'll maybe you'll live Mm-hmm. But if you keep fighting, you're gonna yeah. die, you know. And that's and that's it, it's it also has a major impact on you know the morale of the troops that are there. And, yeah. um, I think you're right though. I mean, that scene where they're in, walking down the street, the thing that struck me also was these guys just they think they're safe, right? But they're outside the lines. They're then like, wait a minute, oh, are we in a bad spot? And then they just start falling. No. Yeah, the gunfire yeah. too. Yeah. Like you're just and you, well, we're they, within the first five minutes. You're like, oh shit. Yeah. Well, to to your point, um, I mean, what's not evident in the movie, but I just from history, I know what a struggle it was just to get to Dunkirk. Sure. Absolutely. You know, like that in itself was survival. Like you've made it here. You're oh crap, it's not <laughs> over. Now you gotta um, leave. Well, yeah. I mean, if and and I kind of imagine putting myself in their situation, going, hey, we've made it. But wait, we're stuck now. Wh- when are we leaving? Like they told us, once we got to Dunkirk, we were going home. Yeah. And you're not. Yeah. And no. uh, you know, part of that is was also the vast scale of it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, when you talk about three hundred soldier, three hundred thousand soldiers, um, you know, and they're all in the same. You're like, oh wow, we're backed up. Um, and what I loved about the, you know, obviously they couldn't reach that number, but six thousand people nonetheless ended up on that beach as extras. Yeah, that's. That's a lot yeah, of people. It's a lot of people. Right. You know, it's certainly not three hundred thousand, but to, to be able to, you know, in terms of when you talk about production, that's 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 a lot large of scale to corral. Um, there's also the tragic irony of it all, being that you can see home 
right? Mm -hmm. Through the mist of the clouds, it's 26 miles away, which isn't an unsurmountable amount of miles unless this happens. And unless the waters are so shallow, destroyers can't get in there to get our boats off. Oh, and unless the German army just keeps on squeezing our perimeter smaller and smaller and smaller. 26 miles then just becomes might as well be the moon. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I can see the moon too, but uh, it's <laughs> hard to get to. Yeah. <laughs> from where I'm sitting. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 the beach sequence or the mole sequences were, again, fantastic. Yeah. Very I well really thought. enjoyed the beach. Just a little bit about the production of the yeah, beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because mm -hmm. they were putting actual like explosives, controlled explosives <laughs> into it. They actually had to <clears throat> survey the whole ground to make sure there weren't any like leftover bullets because they were actually filming on the beaches of Dunkirk yeah. for that exact location. So they had to survey the ground to make sure like no bullets or shrapnel pre-existing right. was there. And they had to... Um, like dig out holes, put in the explosives, and then actually put like clear, filtered, um, actual of their own clean sand mm -hmm. on top of it. So when it exploded, it wasn't exploding debris; it was actually right. exploding like no. cleaner sand. Mm -hmm. um, little production thing that you don't think of. No, that's that's know? pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But Christopher Nolan does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Which he gets people special. to make sure all the details are handled. Yeah, yeah. Right. and he knows what he wants and how uh, and how it's going to look to your to what you were saying, Marissa. Too that scene where blast, blast, mm -hmm. blast, and for a movie that's not in three D, I really did feel like they were coming for me. Yeah, like yeah. you know, and and Tommy is like, oh shit, oh shit, and then that guy dies right in front of him, right. and he realizes right. that was the last bomb. And that's, it's the first five minutes of the film. And so right. you're like, okay, it's, it's going to be that kind of film. Yeah, and then also the, another great uh, uh, intense scene was the sinking of the medical ship as they're getting the, the people off. You know, Of course, the Germans breaking the Geneva Accord and hitting a, you know, a medical ship. Uh, you know, and it's push it away. We can't have it sink into Absolutely. the mole. We can't have it. And then what do we do about the, was that line? What do we do about the, what do we do about the, the hurt people on there? And it's like, well, and what yeah. can we do? Like, That's the irony of it all because like, be, if you had a more medical emergency, you got onto the first ship that got you out, right. but that doesn't mean you're safe. Right. Well, absolutely. You know, you, you see, uh, you know, the, the two main characters that are, that are fighting to get this one wounded soldier to the medical ship, to safety, to life. And he, he's made it. He's the lucky one. He's going to maybe live. And then you realize that, no, he's actually not the lucky one. It would have been better if they left him on the sand Maybe he would have had a better chance well, instead of mm -hmm. drowning. And again, I think know? that's action and consequence yeah. because maybe I read it differently, but the way I read that is he was their ticket out of there. Oh, he was, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. He was definitely the ticket out of there. But he paid a penalty on, also. But, yeah. but that's a consequence of their actions absolutely. that they have to live with that you can tell Tommy this is something that he has to bear. He was trying to get off, and now he puts somebody who is already wounded, and now he probably for sure killed him. Killed yeah. him. Yeah. For his own, I don't want to call it self-preservation. I don't want to say selfishness, but there was a self-preservation which you can understand the motivation mm -hmm. for. And you don't go, geez, what a jerk. It's like, no, they were getting him on a medical ship. 
So survival. Yeah. Survival. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. One of the things you know, I, I want to talk about the uh, the boat that they try to commandeer um, that ends up taking water. But as as a quick side note, um, for all the stories, unlike most of his uh, his cinematography, this was very static. Meaning, like we essentially placed the camera somewhere and it stuck there, and everything else was happening around, and that was chaotic. Um, that's why, like, in terms of the, the, the planes themselves, you know, as you had made mention, everything else was turning around it, but the camera stayed the same. Um, even the shot that you were talking about with the bombs going off, you know, the camera's on the sand. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. else is happening around the camera. Um, so I, I really kind of appreciate that, and I think it's a little bit different than most of his cinematography Yeah. Uh, for that reason. Well, and I think it puts you, it puts you into the... The, it puts you into the thick of things better other than if you have a moving camera which you know is the camera's perspective and what the director wants you to see but if it's locked down and this is what you're seeing it puts you into that perspective in a sense and I do agree with you it looked different sure. than some of his other movies I, I liked it because it also showed the distinction of because right the whole movie really is about survival of the mm-hmm. outside source the, the external um, you know forces that are trying to attack you but Inside this ship, it was more so the the humanistic aspect of like who's good, who's bad. You got that human element of type of survival. Like, do I trust this guy? Do I trust that? Instead of the outside explosives that could kill you, it could be your own fellow men that could kill you. Right. Mm-hmm. And I thought that aspect of the movie was a different shift that I actually when, when they were yeah. when they went on to the the ship that was a the ship, right? yeah, that, when that, that they were trying to, to wait it out. And that to me is a very lifeboatish. Hitchcock's lifeboat kind of we've got a spy on board and it's trying to prove that Absolutely. you're not a spy and then but then it turns once they realize and once it's found out that he's French he's really not a spy he's just trying they still said well he's he's a frog we still he goes and the, and Tommy's like no he's on our side we can't we can't do that it was really interesting conversation uh, taking place there uh, and then of course that boat intersects with you know, yacht. the one week intersects with our one day sure. uh, with the yacht, which is truly, you know, brilliant and tragic, too, because we lost, uh, well, oh, we lost the French. George. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, George, but we lost the French man yeah. uh, as well. Um, it's just very well done. Just, yeah. So we did Beach. Are we going to talk about the, I sea, guess, the sea? The sea. Yeah. The sea. Let's talk. talk. Um, Poor Georgie. Yeah, poor Georgie. I I felt bad for him. But uh, the the Moonstone yacht, for for production, they actually bought and purchased that yacht because they knew they were going to put it through a lot of production rigorous you know things so they just bought it so they wouldn't have to worry about like if they destroyed it they you know insurance or cover that so they bought it so they can do literally whatever they wanted to it and um they they like mounted so many different things on to the yacht and for continuity's sake and um and the different angles because it is a smaller type of vessel that they had to fit a whole crew and and also all the cameras and stuff so yeah, and and they they um, filmed and they did some filming in the English Channel, but a lot of it was seen and uh, was filmed in the Netherlands, on a shallow artificial lake called. There's no way I can pronounce. Is 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 That's the best I'm gonna get at. But you know, and again, the one day 
you have the character of Georgie, who's mm-hmm. a friend. Um, he's like he's not even necessarily part of the family, um, right. and he comes on because he wants to do his <clears throat> his duty, uh, and his friend is Peter. The, 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 I'll the do good, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he again when we talk about no names, it's only Murphy. He's only known as Shivering Man, mm-hmm. that's or Shivering Soldier, mm-hmm. okay. And Georgie doesn't die in battle; he doesn't drown because his ship was sunk. He got pushed. Pushed aside, which again, the actions and consequences of what you do um, and how it affects other people. And, you know, Georgie just wanted to come and do his part because he was probably going to be asked to be taken off that boat or, or the, you know. And so to me, that was probably one of the more tragic deaths because it is in wartime. And I'm glad he got his little paper thing because that was such a nice tender moment you know um him being a hero and he was a hero just for his actions of stepping on that boat and trying to do whatever he can for the short time that that character is on so what do you what do you think of uh the you know the question at the end like you know is he okay and he tells him yeah he's okay like what how did you guys interpret that well you know that actually really struck me as pretty powerful i was i was really impressed that he had the like emotional intelligence the wherewithal absolutely to to say that and that his father knew that wasn't the case like they they all knew that like this soldier the shivering man is broken and we just don't need to break him anymore it does no good you know and so it's kind of like a it's like a doctor saying do no harm and he's gone what, what do we gain from that? And so I, I was just very impressed with that. And then, but at the juxtaposition again at the end, where you see him see the body being carried off. So that struck me, but then he disappeared into the crowd. Yeah. So he did know. And, and it's interesting because there are three times the question comes up. Um, Peter says to the shivering soldier, no, he's not. He's like when if, when the accident first good. happened. No, it's not good. It's not good at all. And he goes around. And then when he passes, how's he doing? And he has the wherewithal. What made that seem powerful for me is when is when Mr. Dawson looks at his son and nods his head and says, yeah. "You did the right thing." And then again, it's broached at the end because he's the only body being carried off by a covered stretcher. So the shivering soldier realizes, and then he disappears. Yeah, I, I thought Very it was. Touching. I thought it was as simple mm-hmm. and as p- impactful as it was. It was because also because when he actually, you know, essentially lies and say he no, he's fine, or he's okay. It was just like in the perspective of it, of it all in the grand scheme of things. That's when all the they just saved everybody else and everyone's Absolutely. alive. And, and to put it into perspective, it's like. It's unfortunately we did lose someone, but we saved so many other people at the mm-hmm. same time. It was kind of a bittersweet moment, unfortunately. Right. Absolutely. Well, well, even to that point too, when um, the father, you know, the the captain of the boat, as he's driving it, he knows he's injured, and he has a choice to make: do I turn around and try, to, we try to save him, yeah. or do I keep going? And he didn't articulate it, but he didn't turn around. 
So yeah. he made his decision. Yeah, Mark Rylance yeah. uh, was also, I mean, very good. I mean, yeah. we're getting great performances out of this movie, but it's interesting, as opposed to other movies where you go, wow, that person was great. Uh, that person really shined, right? In this movie, it's hard to pin down which was the which was the fantastic performance. Like, I think they're going to have a hard time come Oscar. <laughs> right. Like, if you're going to categorize and, and potentially nominate for Best Actor and Best Supporting, where are you going? Like, you can't say that Mr. Dawson, Mark Rylance, is any less important than 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 Fionn's character or Tom Hardy. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to be difficult because it's really hard to single out like a really good act actor or act, no, actresses, so to speak. But it's tough to single because they're all very good and they all have their moments, but nobody outshines anybody else because of the structure of the story, I believe. And what are your thoughts on that? I uh, 100% agree. I think, you know, um, as much as there's the cinematography, there's the, like the editing creates the story, um, as do the sound effects. And, uh, you know, Lee Smith has collaborated with Nolan on a lot of movies at this point. Um, and I, I think they get each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know... Though this was his shortest movie, it, it uh, I feel like he let people off the hook. <laughs> Imagine how how much longer he could have kept people within this world. But I, um, and yeah. that 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 I feel like w- would have been gratuitous. Yeah. Um, but I think they they structured it in a in a, in a unique way. Um, I would have been curious. You know, Steven Spielberg is a master of match edits, and Absolutely. so I, I would have loved to see sort of match edits, kind of you know tying the storylines, even though they're different points. Right. And obviously, Nolan has a different style, but I think that would have created a little bit more cohesiveness for all of it. Um, but nonetheless, um, I think overall, masterfully done. Yeah, but, and I and I have to say, I know we all have busy lives and everything. If you have the opportunity. To go see this again, I, I, I highly recommend doing so. You will now that that first thing just washes over you. Sure. The second viewing, now that you sort of know what to expect, you'll end up seeing things. You'll go, oh, okay. I think and with Nolan, we've been conditioned that way. I don't think yeah. there's any yeah. Nolan movie that comes out that you're not, that's like, true. Eh. Like, that's true. Like Dark Knight, you don't necessarily need to see it twice to be like, oh, what was part of the reveal. But you're like, oh, well, this is a great movie, so let me go see it again. Right. But The Prestige and uh, certainly Inception and uh, Memento. and Interstellar. Yeah, yeah. You know, those are all ones that you're like, okay, let me see the artistry yeah. of the trick. Yeah. Um, but I have to, uh, I'm going to let Marissa lead the rest of this. Oh. I, have to, I have to do my part elsewhere. He has to go see Dunkirk again. <laughs> yeah, she's convinced <laughs> me. Go see it in 70 millimeter. Yeah. Yeah. convinced yeah. me. So um, anyway, uh, no, I've got, uh, I've got other duties I've got to fulfill, unfortunately. But um, you guys, Marissa will lead the ship uh, from here on. I will drive the yacht. Keep That's calm right. and carry on, yep. <laughs> as they say. There you go. Thanks, Thank Phil. you, Phil. So is there anything else about the production that we may have missed or yeah, you wanted to mention? Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about, uh, again, since we're talking about On the Sea... Um, there was a camera boat in Dunkirk that was, believe it or not, an adaptation um, of another camera that Nolan invented for the Dark Knight movies that he used for the car sequences, and it's called The Edge, and they repurposed it 
and they adapted it so that it was called the quote-unquote camera boat. And basically, it's a crane mounted to a Mercedes SUV, and we wanted to create a boat equivalent of that. So we found a big catamaran, right? Mm-hmm. This is replacing the Mercedes, mounted this 26-foot-long uh, gyro-stabilized telescopic crane to the front of it, it was nimble and could turn and maneuver easily while holding an IMAX camera. Now, IMAX cameras yeah, are they're huge. about as big as this TV yeah. set. Um, they're pretty big. And so getting to use it, everything is slower in a boat, and you can't hold your position. And being able to, to design the camera to do this, um, that was like a really big thing for them to... Uh, Right. The fact that they had to find a big enough thing to mount it on and mount the camera on right. and I mean, speaks volumes. And I'll even say, I mean, I've done lots of on-the-water shoots, and if you think it's hard enough to shoot in a stable platform, like you mentioned, try doing that where not only is the camera moving, but the thing you're trying to film is also moving. No. So, you know, your whole, your, the whole aspect of what you're doing is just changing constantly. Filming at sea is what yeah. nearly drove Steven Spielberg mad on filming Jaws. Mm. And well, almost yeah. made them rethink of, like, what the hell was I thinking of? He wanted, a, he wanted that realism. Right. Uh, but that ended up being a huge task. And when you're talking tides... Yeah, we've yeah. talked about other films yeah. that yeah. have shot on water. And, you like, directors always give the same advice to other directors. Don't do it. Right. <laughs> for that exact reason. For weather, uh, you know, inclinations. For continuity's sake and coloring. And, mm-hmm. like, we talked a little bit about the fact that they had to deal with all the weather and storms. Right. But even um, because of Dunkirk and the actual location, Location, that the the weather and coloring was different and would sure. mess with continuity. Sometimes it'd be really foggy, and then there'd be moments where the sun would just pop out for a mm-hmm. minute, but it would mess up an entire shot. Yeah. So, like, and those are other things that they had to endure, let alone yeah. you know finding well, your sea legs it, and filming scenes in the channel or in the lake. Um, it also meant that other departments had to be out on the water, forming their own flotillas. So. <laughs> In addition yeah. to the camera boats, you had safety boats, makeup and hair boats, wardrobe boats, and even more. Even meals had to be ferried out to casting crew. It's a lot of boats. But unlike a land-based production, it wasn't so easy to move out of the way. When Nolan moved the camera for a different angle, every time you shot in a certain direction, all those boats would have to be moved so they right. wouldn't be in that shot. Yeah. Huge. And Can again, these are the things that we don't, like, you don't think about. Moving a 600 crew... Uh, in oh, different absolutely. boats, like, now move over here. Yeah, yeah That's so a task. on the production's biggest day at sea, during the week they filmed the little ships, there were as many as 62 boats gathered on the English Channel, and the filmmakers were extremely gratified that among them were some of the boats that had actually sailed from England in 1940 to rescue the men. Um, so the oh. ships recreating the yeah. courageous and historic journey for the films of the Caroline, the, the, the current Karenia, Elvin, Endeavor, Hilfernor, Mary Jane, Mimosa, which you saw the Mimosa, right? Yeah. right? I didn't realize these were the actual, actual boats. And MTB-102, New Britannic, Nyula, Papillon, Princess Elizabeth, and R-I-S-I-I-S-1, 
were actual divisions. Yeah, like yeah, I yeah. really appreciate it. The fact that like they went with authentic- authenticity and it just makes well, the movie a lot more special when they had the original. Uh, uh, doesn't it make the Boda character now? Like, yeah, each yeah. of the original things had cameos in this movie. What a proud moment for the owners. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a, and it's a testament to the craftsmanship. Well, you know, that struck you know, me, both. honestly, when I saw the credits roll. And it was like, oh, wow. Because they still had a part to play. Yeah. You know, they were they were the old sailors. <clears throat> they were the old people. You know, they're, they're like, I, I was there. This is my story, too. And that's, that's really powerful. Yeah. And, yeah. I yeah. I want to ask you what were you, what was your reaction when you saw that amazing like two three minute moment when we saw the English boats actually come to safety like our guys are coming for us and we saw the moment in the be- beautiful music swell and all that but like what was your reaction when you saw like our guys are coming for us safety is here I mean it, to me it was just like it, it worked it was it was amazing like we haven't been forgotten. Because before then, you know, the whole time you're sitting there in, in anticipation. It's like, you know, when are my parents going to pick me up after school? But not that. <laughs> it's like, but someone's shooting at me. And so instead, like, oh, my God, they're coming. And they're, and then it's like the flotilla is so massive. And it's, it's even hard to capture it in 70 millimeter how big right. that flotilla was. It was like, they're still coming. And so if I was on that shore, it was like, I can get in a boat. It's not just one boat. It's not two boats. I'm at the back of the line. I still can get out of here, too. It was a catharsis for me um, when that happened. And I think it was Kenneth Branagh's character who really expressed, like, the look on his face and him going down. Are you from Sosa? No. Oh, that's great. Are you from Sosa? Yeah. And there was that safety. It's like, we can get these men off, but yet we still had more story to go, you know? We had more story to go, and that was a one respite where you actually, yeah, it's like a fist pump moment. Yeah. I like, I completely agree. When great. I saw this moment, I thought it was like perfectly timed. But then, granted, this is a fairly shorter film, but it was perfectly timed. But then, all the chaoticness that we saw and the anxiety that built up, mm-hmm. and then you saw that sweet relief of like, oh, okay, there's actually They're a chance. Here. There's yeah. safety. These are our guys coming for us. Like and I think it was just so well placed in the movie. It gave us a moment to breathe. That yeah. sigh of relief that was so needed. It was yeah. needed at that point. Um, one of my favorite scenes too, on top of that ball, was when that soldier wakes up. Oh, that he was... had slept yeah. the, the entire thing. thing, and they're like going, "Come on, soldier, you're gonna have to go with the officers if that's okay with you." Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. if yeah. you don't mind, and. Uh, um, Oh, I forget the character's name, but he goes, aren't you coming, sir? And he goes, no. I'm going to wait till everybody, commander. He goes, I'm going to wait for everybody to come off the French. Yeah, I loved it. And we saw all those boats and too, because, yeah, we got the grand scale of like the battleships and like, and all those big tanks. But also it just showed like, just because you are a small boat, like you can make a world of difference. You could save mm-hmm. men's mm-hmm. lives. And it's like, don't be forgotten. They are the ones that sa- help save this. Oh, yeah, event. absolutely. And, and your point, too, about the commander staying behind was it even kind of struck me, too, as like the audience, like, it's not over. You know, the movie's ending, but it's still actually going on. Right. It's still continuing on. Now's the next group of boats that are going to come to right. get the French out of here. And, and so. 
it was a, a long day. It yeah. Was definitely, yeah. 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 So you know, it's 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 funny because I have two of my notes. Uh, they talk about building the gimbals on. You must have been walking by stage sixteen. Oh, at I Warner was. Brothers. <laughs> I certainly so, was. I have friends have, at WB, so that, that's why I was walking around. Yeah, at WB. so so uh, they have one of the largest water tanks in the world, uh, but they also did some filming at Universal Studios water tank yeah. uh, uh, as well. So, and stage sixteen also where they filmed a lot of Inception. It, yeah. It, holds all the the big water scenes yeah. And, and yeah they definitely used it for this one like yeah. they 120,000 pound ship can you imagine yeah well yeah. I, actually the funny thing is i just remember as part of our negotiations as we were working with uh warner to on this actually i went into that stage before they actually flooded it because they were just taking the floor off and everything like that and it's amazing because it's normally just a, a flat stage and right they had to take everything apart and one of the other crazy things was they hadn't used it in so long that they had to actually repair some of it because it was a lot of rust and things like that from the water had been in there before. So it was, it was definitely neat. Yeah, and everything the way that it was done, too. And there was never, he always, and again, from a script writing standpoint, it's near perfect because each scene is its own set of conflicts. Like, okay, we made it. We made it to this boat that the tide's going to take out. Phew. Oh, wait. Not so fast. Right. Potential spy and the Germans are shooting at us. Oh, we're out to sea. We might make it. Oh, not so fast. There's a torpedo boat. There's a destroyer that gets torpedoed. And again, this is how all the stories intertwine. When, when, when the Moonstone comes up and it's got to save people from the, the sinking destroyer, right. the, the blue ship, the... the you know, and then dragging people, and then a plane, and then you and add then to that a plane's going to crash, and ignite the oil in the water because that's even when um, Lord gentleman there, the other, the second, the pilot that splashed down, right? Yeah, he's like going, "We gotta go now. Absolutely, we gotta go. You gotta go." Um, that scene was tremendous. It was tragic, but the way in which it was filmed, I felt as if I was in the water. I, I could feel the heat. Um, I, I have to amazing. argue, I felt like that moment when, you know, they're Which getting all, all the men out of the, and you know that <clears throat> eventually the, the oil is going to light itself, and now we have an explosion mm-hmm. on the water. Um, I felt that was probably the most action-packed moment of the whole movie. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And actually, uh, bringing those men on, I, I, to be fair, I'm not just saying this because you're here, I was thinking finest hours. It's like we got a small vessel, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we're trying to get all these men up. Like, get as many as, as you many can. Many men on, right. on this yacht, and oh, I like to see it go underneath. Son, he goes, "No, I'm going to stand up here. Uh, this is my boat. If you want to swim back, <laughs> you can stay Absolutely. up there. Get under. Yeah, I'm the captain. Bed. Sorry. Yeah, but yeah. I also did like that. The, the secondary moment when they came up and they're like, no, you gotta stay down. It's like, no, we just want to see the cliffs. Like, this is the their cliffs. home. This is where yeah. they live. This is solace and yeah. sanctuary for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I did like the, the two different aspects of, you know, like they wanted to be on top of the yacht. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I enjoy that. Yeah. And, and, and just the way, too, how it all comes together. Um, you know, that we know that they get saved off of the mole, off of the beach. They get rescued. We know uh, that the Moonstone makes it back. And I also enjoyed this part, too. They get off, and they're feeling like failures. Mm-hmm. 
and people are like congratulating him. And um, the One Direction guy, Harry Styles, says, "What are you congratulating me for? We, we retreated. Like we did." And it's not until later on, and this comes into Churchill's right um, speech. And yes, you don't win wars by retreating, but you win wars by basically saying you win wars by getting your army back. And this is like the biggest thing, and we have so much to be proud because now we can carry on. Right. We have everything going on, and we get that towards the end, but that they were heralded as heroes for retreating, which isn't normally sure. the case, but they survived. Yeah, and I think that that's the significance of Dunkirk that people might not understand. It's like, had British given up and actually um, you, you know, surrendered, they would have lost the war. But because that they survived and made it through this, they could live to literally fight another day and right. another battle to keep going on. And that's right. like this Absolutely. was a moment that they survived to keep going forward. Yeah, okay. Had they died and all surrendered, it would have been over. It would have been over. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's a great point because that was really impactful to me too. Like when you mentioned that, and like the one gentleman that was blind, yeah. obviously when you know he's, he's touching his face, but at the same time, I think it was the Harry Styles character who said, uh, he's like, he didn't even look at me. He right. didn't realize that he was blind. He thought the guy was like, I'm disgusted by yeah. you. Go away. Right. You yeah. know, and instead it was, I just can't see you. Instead, I'm here giving you water and blankets because I'm, I'm proud right. of you, yeah. son. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm happy you're back. And we're yeah. going to go defeat that Nazi yeah. horde next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it That's was great. great to see when, when the, the train pulls in, guys tapping in the glass, giving right. two beers and... You know, Tommy's reading from the newspaper, but I also like how it ends on Tommy's face, which is still a thing of, what the hell did I just go through? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we do get to carry on. So, um, one thing that we haven't, so we talked about all those ends, but we didn't talk about the air end, which was yeah. interesting. Now, you, we talk we about, when they, talk about the air when, when they, magic. when they get, when they, you know, the fist bump you were talking about. Uh. Okay, so we've got our pilot out of gas, out of fuel. Mm-hmm. He's ghosting. He goes over, he sees them all, but he notices another plane. And it's so well done, too, because we go back to the mole. We see people's expression going, oh, shit, we're going to get bombed. Like, this is it. We're going <laughs> to bomb everybody. Right. That's it. And then all of a sudden, the plane explodes and Tom Hardy's plane goes by. I was like, that was yeah! that was so. That was like that's awesome. But yeah. like even the guys on the beach were cheering because like I think the whole theater so, like cheered. yeah, it was such a great moment. Erupted and that. but then like after it happened, I was like, could a Spitfire really do that? So I did. I looked it up and really I fact checked this gliding. Uh, the gliding for I mean he was out of fuel for a, a little while. Yeah, and yeah. he was actually trying to look to land. So, basically, a Spitfire, this, according to BBC reported that after the war, attempts were made to make Spitfires break the sound barrier. So, um, and then what's more, in USA Today, a Q&A with a pilot posed the question for how far a jetliner could glide if the engine quit at 30,000 feet. And he said about 100 miles or so, depending on wind and all that stuff. So, an older, smaller plane like the Spitfire would cruise at only 20,000 and it's 78.5 miles from Dover, England to Dunkirk. So even after the Spitfire's dogfight, the distance it traveled in the film without a propeller 
was well within the range of possibility. Wow. Incredible. So, so it's realistic. Yeah. And again, You're sort of a tragic because now he's a prisoner of war. Mm-hmm. So I like how we blew up the plane and he was just yeah. waiting because he knew, you know. But it also showed like the heroic actions that a lot of pilots go through. That, Absolutely. Like, yeah. They put the decisions they yeah, make. Yeah. The decisions to save other people before their own. Um, you really applauded that because he had so many opportunities to turn back. Right. But he purposely kept going forward. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so like and one thing too, I think we really have to talk about too, because it was such a part of this movie, is the score. Yes, Hans, Hans Zimmer's score. Hans Zimmer has redeemed himself with me because he's, he's a lot of his soundtracks lately have just it was been sounding alike, <laughs> alike, bombastic, loud, overpowering, maybe mm-hmm. yeah. overpowering. The score in this actually was a part of the movie. Mm-hmm. It, for me, the score built and maintained suspense. And, and there was a, a constant ticking, tick, 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 right. tick, Clock. that was put into the thing, which, my trivia... It's also in the trailer. Yeah, it's actually uh, Christopher, Christopher Nolan's watch, watch. Oh, wow. that he okay. recorded and he sampled and he put in. Um, I just felt that, and, and I have the sound. But that's track. like the sorry, sorry no, that, no, no, no. That's the overlying theme that they yeah, keep reiterating time. in the film. Time. Like, time is something that we Absolutely. don't have. Yeah, yeah, and I just think that this score is so much a part. Literally, is so much a part of this movie. If you were to take it out, I think the movie would stand, but it wouldn't be as suspenseful. Sure, just from the way that. It worked, and he had his ups and downs, and I just thought it was amazing. Is yeah. there a certain moment in the film where, like, you really noticed the score and like really impacted you? The very beginning, hmm. the very very beginning, because it started off so quiet, and then when the shots started, and then you're off to the races, and we're on the beach, and then I could then then I was having a hard time rolling, yeah. Figuring what score, what sound effect, what's coming in because it's so melded in, and that's where to me I was like, the score is ingrained into this right. movie. It's a part of it. So yeah, well, I think I was almost taken a, I had almost a little bit different perspective in terms of the score. I liked the fact that it wasn't so Inception like, where it wasn't so overpowering <laughs> that I really just felt like, are they actually? Is there an actual score? Because. I don't know. Did they actually play music in the whole movie? Because it it was so integral that it really just it worked. It didn't like take over and stand out. It, it was just like the score to your life. Mm-hmm. It's not overpowering you. So, How yeah. about you? I, I I think it was the moment when we saw all the the English boats and yes. you know that they were coming yeah. for our guys. Sure. And because there was no words involved, it was just like literally just a montage right. of all the boats coming, and all you hear is music, and and it really it helps enhance your emotions. Like so. safety, safety is here. <laughs> I, I I couldn't agree with him more. Like I got, I, admittedly, I got choked up at that moment. Yeah. I was like, oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and and I can't, I don't know, I, I can't think of a movie as of yet this year. Like I did like the Wonder Woman score a lot. Um, the music in Baby Driver, albeit not score, but it was music set mm-hmm. to that movie. But this score was a living, breathing part of the movie. Its its actual sounds seemed to be sounds that I could hear from the ships or from the planes sure. or from whatever. And this was all part of the score. Uh, I thought it was really Hans Zimmer's, one of his best pieces of score. Yeah. That 
the, did, didn't rely on the bombastic. Yeah, right. There were moments I can clearly tell it was Hans Zimmer. I didn't even need the credits yes. to oh, re- sure. yeah. let me know because we're so used to his music now that there were, <laughs> honestly, there were a few bars that I was like, oh, yeah, this is Hans. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, there were a few bars that sounded like his... A little like dark his, oh, yeah. A little like his other previous work, but I was okay with that because he, he does have his signature in his Absolutely. composition, you know, like most, no as all composers mm-hmm. do. Um, but I didn't feel overpowering like some films have been. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. it, the music came in at all the right moments. So yeah. let's get into the numbers of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Before we Absolutely. wrap up, yeah. um, Dimitri. Perception. Um, so as of um, J- July 27th, so as of today. Um, Today's 28th. To 28th, I'm sorry. So yeah, we only have yesterday's numbers to, to account from. $74 million. $74.7 million. Not too shabby considering thematically, this is not a superhero movie. It's it's not a pure thriller. It's not an action movie. It's not a John Wick kind of a movie. This is a war movie released in the thick of summer, mm-hmm. which is an a very odd time to release a movie. So the mere fact that this movie opened up to $50 million on its opening weekend to become number one movie um, on 3,720 location, it, it is the widest distribution of a 70 millimeter. It's played the most 70 Absolutely. millimeter locations uh, than any other previous 70 millimeter in before in the country. Um, foreign um, million dollars so it's doing it's doing really solid it's got a production budget of 100 million which I I feel that they should recap I think the word of mouth on this movie uh, continues to build Um, it has a little bit of competition going into its second week uh, considering there is an action movie uh, Atomic Blonde that's coming out but I mean 92% on Rotten Tomatoes solid um, a minus on cinema score, um, and again we are talking like a war movie that's done different. Uh, narrative threads are different. You have to pay attention to this movie. Not too shabby. I mean, the perception I think the, you know people I've spoken to have felt the same way. You right, know. and yeah. you also have the added fact you have Christopher Nolan, who's already well established as a director and for his narrative, not linear storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, you know, coming off of the Dark Knight series and Interstellar, like, he has built a following that people just want to see his movies because he does sure. make great films. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, honestly, like, the cinephiles that I've talked to and have seen and were witness to in the theater, they wanted to see it, too, because of, like, just the whole cinematography right. that they could expect with the 70 millimeter. They want yeah. the cinematic experience. I wanted to ask you something about the releasing of this movie in summer because this is something I, that I thought a lot about Dunkirk after watching it. Do you think they potentially released it in the summer as opposed to closer to the award season? Which may have been... Well, look, you plant flags very early on. So there may have been a time that they could have gone out in October, November with this movie, right? But I was thinking, geez, was somebody was a was somebody like saying if we release it in the summer, we're playing against the superhero movie. We're gonna give audiences something different to go to. So that when they go see Dunkirk, when they're done with their movie experience, they're gonna come out going, Oh my God, 
I, I just saw a different movie. Had nobody oh, was a superhero. It was a, I just like I saw something that was different that I haven't seen all summer long. It's technically yeah. an original film compared right. to all the sequels that we have. Yeah, yeah. and you can't franchise it. Well, well yeah. you know, it was a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, it really was. I mean, it, it had been so long. I think since I'd seen like a a movie. Yeah. Not just, you know, like an actual like cinematic experience yeah. mm-hmm. where I could be part of instead of just watching. Yeah. You know? I think also, yes, because a lot of summer films tend to get overshadowed by the Academy Awards because it's not closer to that season. But I think it also maybe added to the fact of the actual storytelling and when it actually historically happened, because mm-hmm. it happened in May of 1940. Mm-hmm. So maybe closer to the summertime, it makes sense just for the story of it. Right. Sure. And it is a good time in the summer. People are just in the habit of seeing a movie every weekend because it's the summer blockbusters. Yeah. And, again, add Christopher Nolan to it. Right. I think it it has all these factors to it that can make it a successful movie, no matter what time of the year you're releasing it. Yeah, I, you know, I think its uniqueness sets it apart from anything that I've seen too. Which I, you know, this is what I hope is going to carry it through award season because by the time we're in July, uh, August, September, uh, October, November, yeah. December, January, uh, like seven by October. Off. Well, I'm just thinking October, November-ish, even December, they could be releasing this on, on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right? Um, potentially, because we're so still in the summer, where most of the Academy movies are coming out that time. Uh, it shouldn't be forgotten just because of its cinematic narrative and how something's going to have to be really special and show me something fresh and new, and I'm going to have to come out going, wow. I'm not saying that there was going to be bad movies. Or I'm saying there was probably going to be some damn good movies that we're going to get, but they're going to have to now equal Dunkirk. Well, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, I was going to say, that's a great way to look at it, too, because now everything that comes out is going to be compared to it. Mm-hmm. You hope. So, right. Yeah. That's what, you know, so you've we got... Short memories. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. Especially absolutely. when like, we watch movies every single week. We're absolutely. in the time span that is our media industry. We're immediately going <laughs> to forget. Yeah, absolutely. And which is sad. But also, I'm going to make an early prediction that Dunkirk is already going to be nominated for Best it has Picture. To, it has to take already. one of those ten Seven slots. Months. Mark yeah. it now. Yeah. Time stamp <laughs> it yeah. now. Yeah. I'm saying yeah. Dunkirk is already going to get nominated for yeah. Best Picture for yeah. next yeah. year's awards. I have that in It has to. It has to take a... It has to. It has to. Yeah, it's my review. You have to. I mean, it has to take one Maybe of the even ten not slots. for the acting, even though we have solid actors in it. But admittedly, no one's going to the theater because says, I'm going to see this because Tom Hardy's in it. I'm going to see it because Mark Ryland says it. They're great actors, no less. But this film, like, wins on so many uh, technical, logical, technical. Editing, it's, sound sorry. mixing, score. Hello, yeah, Hans Zimmer. He's going to get nominated too. <laughs> Show that in yeah, there. Yeah. Christopher Nolan for, for best direction. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Like this film, just in film filmic standpoint, yeah, from of, an artistic film, standpoint, it's going to get nominated on so many different. Things. Yeah, I, I hope so, and I just don't want it to be forgotten because it is doing it, its commercial sense, but it's not like your commercial movie. Um, and again, I'm not slamming superhero movies, but I think when we get a Dunkirk kind of movie or 
It is a breath of fresh air. But yeah. like, it's a, and it's a good cinematic yeah. experience. And even to add to that, another Christopher Nolan film like Dark Knight. Dark Knight was the reason why the Academy Awards expanded from five films to ten films for Best Picture. Yeah. And that was a summer movie. Right. And they're going to do that again with Dunkirk. Rewriting yeah. the, the book. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't see it being forgotten. Um, and like I think it's set a very high bar. And again, I think... Listen, for me, I was having a conversation with our good friend Ian, Ian Kaiser. I was mm. driving up here. I had a great conversation mm. with him. Always great to hear his voice. And we were talking about how the second half, I was sorry, the second half of the summer for me is when we're seeing actually some really solid, great movies that have mm. been different. They've been showing us like fresh, exciting. It's, it's a good reason to go to the movies. And again, yeah. I say with Dunkirk, if you haven't already seen it again, I urge we you just to go told see it. the whole movie. Yeah. yeah, but see it again. But and see it again. I urge you to see it in a 70 millimeter if you can. And I'm telling you, you're going to come out of there going, oh my God. Yeah, look at how that crisscrossed. And look at that it's person who's over here. It's yeah. genius in editing and writing. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a great solid film. Anything mm-hmm. last words about this film? Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure Honestly. you had a lot to, you know, um, yeah, say, especially being a part of it. Now, because you were part of the production aspect and you saw some of the filming, now seeing it after the fact, uh, what were your reactions? Or like, did it live up to what you think it was going to be? Oh, absolutely! I mean, it it really blew me away. And I think you know, actually, so being on set with Chris Nolan, first off, to say the dedication to actually making these scenes and like the commitment to getting it right, it just came across when you actually see it on the big screen. And I was like okay, a lot of work going in here, all right, get it, get it, get it. And it's like, oh, wow, it, it was a payoff. And that, that just was so impressive. And it's just, just a, you know, a commensurate, like, of the fact that he's an artist when it comes mm-hmm. to his, his craft. And that's, that's impressive. Did you have a nice, great sense of pride uh, in seeing in the thank yous? It was the United States Coast Guard. Was oh, absolutely. That? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, it, it's definitely one of those great Hollywood things, you know, when... When you sit there, as we all know, of like, okay, we'll watch the credits to see everyone and say thanks to the people that are doing it. But then it's like, oh yeah, thanks to see that. It's it's nice. It's just it's just that little bit of like appreciation. Like thanks for your efforts. And yeah, it pays off. Well, thank you for being here too. Yeah, thanks so much for joining yeah. us once again. Yeah, my yeah. pleasure. Thank you. Guys. Love to be back. So, do you have because I well I know you're retired but like do you have any other projects that you might be working on or like consulting on? Yeah, so uh, I've got some ideas of some uh, TV shows and the movies. Uh, we're, we're kind of working on with some folks. They're kind of developing some ideas, and uh, hopefully maybe we'll be back here to actually talk to you guys about them. There you yeah. go. That well, would be welcome awesome. back anytime. Yeah, absolutely. So, Thank you guys. Thanks again. All right. Well, thanks everyone for following us. And again, you can download our very in-depth, detailed rundown with all the information that so. we may have skipped over um, due to time constraints of the show. But thanks for <laughs> j- joining us. Where can we follow you? Uh, at DMovies1701. There is one thing. Um, we should, I should mention that uh, um, Harry Styles... For all you women that we were watching us, sorry, we didn't talk much Harry Styles. I will say this, however, the screening I went to, at number one, the first thing I thought was, why the hell are all these, like, teenage girls here? Uh. Like, and then when I figured out, like, wow, he brought teenage girls in to see Dunkirk. Did not know that, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, um, 
he was very good in this movie, I have to say. I didn't know about his history. I don't listen to One Direction. I'm sorry. No slight. But he was a good presence uh, yeah. in this movie. So. All right. And do you have Twitter? Any places people can follow you? Absolutely. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, all the things that... Uh, at what it says on my license plate, actually, at Prove It. That's uh, P-R-U-V-E-I-T. I love it. Yeah. And you can follow me on Twitter at Serafini TV. You can follow the Popcorn Talk everywhere. Um, at the Popcorn Talk, follow Anatomy of a Movie, at Movie Anatomy. We do updates on what movies we'll be covering every single week. We still have right. the second half of the summer to cover, so a lot more to talk yeah. about. And it's you, you watch it seven months from now. This movie will be nominated on so many different things. I called it. All right, awesome. thanks everyone for tuning in, and we will see you for our next dissection. Take care. From producers Maria Bruno's, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff, we would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie.